happens, but uh, uh, we'll have a good time anyway, I hope. Let's start by reading a passage from the New Testament, shall we? This is from Acts chapter 14, a story that we last looked at in this church two years ago, as I remember, when we went through Acts, and um, this is something that happened when Paul and Barnabas were on a missionary trip and came uh, to a city called Lystra. So, Acts 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, said that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to him in human form. Hermes... Uh, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to, uh, to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and let him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. <laughs> the reason I've read that story is simply because this is one of the first times that the gospel, the Christian message, encounters a pagan audience, a completely different Christian, uh, a completely different worldview uh, from uh, the one that the uh, first Christians were used to addressing. You see, they were going to the synagogues in those days. They were talking largely to Jewish audiences. And here, they were up against full-fledged paganism. After a miracle took place, it was interpreted in one way, which was very different from the way that they interpreted it, and they got in trouble. <laughs> I mentioned this morning that Greg Kukul, who's written some interesting books about how to share your faith with people who are not Christians, says that this is the question that uh, gets Christians more embarrassed than almost any other. <laughs> they just don't know how to answer it because it sounds as if you're saying, I'm better than you, what I believe is, 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 is better than what you believe, and therefore I am smarter than you. And knowing how to answer uh, questions about other faiths and how they fit in with Christianity's claim to be the one revelation of God that everybody needs to pay attention to, well, that is quite an issue. So we're going to have a look at that tonight a little bit. And uh, we're going to, uh, tonight, just open up the question, look at some answers to it, and then next week we'll, we'll try to earth it a bit in the Bible and what the Bible actually says on the subject, and I'll look at three things you can say, three things you can hold in your mind if you want to answer that question for somebody else. And now, have I switched this thing on? I have no, it works better when it's on, I think. No, no, it's not, I think, oh, let's see, excuse me. No, I think this is not going to work, Richard, I think the battery must be flat, Sorry? Okay, right, fine. Okay, right. In 1893, something happened that had never happened in the entire history of the planet before. It was a big exhibition in Chicago. It was called the 400th Columbian Exposition. 
to celebrate 400 years since Columbus had discovered America. Actually, if you remember, it got there in 1492, so it should have been 1892 and not 1893, but they argued for a year about which city should have the honour of staging it, and so they were a year late when it happened. And they had all sorts of pavilions and things going on in, in the exhibition. But the thing that was different from anything else was a thing that you see here called the World Parliament of Religions. <laughs> it was the first time in history that people from Hindu backgrounds, Buddhist backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, all sorts of world religious backgrounds got together on the stage in Chicago and in front of a, an audience that queued up right round the block to get in to hear, to hear them uh, discuss the differences between their religions. And there were many, many people there who wanted to believe, you're all saying the same thing. You're all preaching the same message. And all you have is different words and phrases for it. But all religions are actually doing the same job. It was a very Christian biased kind of thing. Uh, some of the gurus and swamis were quite uh, uh, distressed to find that the, the proceedings every day would begin with reciting the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and there were certainly more dog colours and evidence on the, on the platform than anything else. But uh, it was still an incredible platform for other faiths. Many people who came and listened started to, 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 to think, well, this is just as we suspected. These people have got a spirituality all of their own. It's just as good as anything the West has ever produced. If only we can get all of the religions together, then we can make progress. Next one, please, Richard. At about the same time, this lady was starting a cut called Theosophy. This is Madame Helena Blavatsky, and uh, she was a, a Russian émigré who claimed all sorts of improbable stories about herself. And in fact, if you click on it again, I think yeah, we'll get the words. The uh, Society for Psychical Research investigated her and said that she was one of the most accomplished, ingenious, and interesting imposters in history. She was notable for doing fake miracles, for bringing messages from the dead or from the other side of the world, claimed to be in touch with Mahatmas in Tibet who uh, could do wonderful things through her. And uh, Theosophy was an interesting cult because it claimed that all of the religions of the world had a little bit of truth in them. They all did. And at the kernel of every religion, there was a thing called the Theosophia, the knowledge, the wisdom of God. And if only you could extract that kernel, then you could bring all of the different world religions together. Of course, Madame Vatsky was the only person who knew how you could get hold of the Theosophia, and uh, so you had to subscribe to her group to, to actually get anywhere with it. But it, it just mushroomed to an immense size. And Theosophy in the 20th century has almost died out. It had a, a brief revival when the New Age came along in the 1980s and people started saying, hey, this is a New Age kind of thing. And so they started going to Theosophy meetings again. But it's, it's, it's nowhere near the size that it was in the 19th century. Because again, it was preaching a message that people really wanted to hear. We can bring all of these world religions together and they'll stop fighting and we'll have a peaceful world and we'll all pursue God together. Well, after that, as you know, there were two world wars and various other things that happened and so it kind of dropped into the background until the 60s. And in the 60s, next one please, um, uh, we had a whole range of Indian gentlemen who started turning up in, in the West in the wake of the psychedelic movement saying, hey, drugs can't give you eternal peace, but I can. <laughs> there was a divine liberation with its 14, 15-year-old uh, uh, Guru Maharaji. Um, I say 14 or 15 because he, he changed his age, it seemed, every time he made a public pronouncement. But he was young. He was very young. Um, there was the, uh, the, the, the Hare Krishna group, which you see here in Oxford Circus, uh, alarming everybody by marching along, uh, uh, chatting at the top of their voice in, in, in their uh, saffron robes and inviting people for a free meal back at the, uh, at the temple. 
Um, there was also, uh, if we see the next one, uh, the personal guru of uh, the Beatles, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, um, who uh, fascinated them and their girlfriends, as you can see, and hangers-on for quite a while and made, made, made quite a bit of fame for transcendental meditation before Paul McCartney got tired of the whole thing and came home saying that the Maharishi was just an ageing Hindu conman, as he put it. But people are starting to play with these ideas that there may be in other spiritualities something we're missing in the West. And people look at the Christian church and how badly it was doing in so many places and how many people were in it because it was a job rather than because they believed anything and started saying, we need some of the drive and the spirituality that we haven't got in Christianity. And if we can put all of that back together again, then we're going somewhere. And of course, over the last few years, next slide, we have uh, seen uh, the uh, massive um, uh, immigration into Britain of people of Sikh backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, Hindu backgrounds, and so it's normal British towns. Uh, next picture too will have a, 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 a mosque right in the middle of them and a, a growing um, community of uh, other faiths to Christian faiths. So it's becoming a more and more important question. And when you look at uh, the people who are, are running things in this country, more and more you see Asian names, don't you? And clearly, some of the Muslim speakers that you hear on, on, on radio or television, not necessarily talking about religion, but all sorts of other subjects, are well-educated, bright, intelligent people. We're not up against uh, benighted pagans. We're up against people who understand Britain as well as well. <laughs> and in some cases, have, have more academic qualifications than many of us. And so it's no longer possible for people to look down on other religions and say, well, they're all just a load of superstition and eating your grandmother for supper. We know that there are people in this country who have views which are very different from Christian views about the nature of reality, and they have got to be heard. So where does that leave Christians? If Jesus Christ really did say, as we quoted this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me, if it's true that the early Christians did say there is no salvation in any other, for there's no other aim under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved... <laughs> Does that leave Christians as just incredibly arrogant? Well, I want to start exploring that in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Let's just see what we can do. First question you've got to ask, I suppose, and we'll move on a slide if that's okay, is where do religions come from anyway? <laughs> and uh, if you click it again, you'll see that this is a, actually an Austrian argument because these two Austrians up here have got different views about the whole thing. The popular view, I suppose, is the guy on the left, whom you might recognise. That's Sigmund Freud, the father of... Uh, 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 psychology and, and 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 Freud was someone who described himself as an old atheist Jew <laughs> who did not believe in God at all and believed that religion was basically something that the human race could do without. He described Christianity right enough as a, a crooked cure because he had to admit despite himself that some of the patients that he couldn't do anything with had been helped psychologically by coming to faith of Jesus but he thought it was a crooked cure because basically religion started from a very uh, uh, obscure and, uh, and irrational basis. And his, his view, and the view of many people uh, like him, was that it started really with the, the, the fear of nature that primitive people had. They were scared of thunder. They were worried about fire. They didn't like it when there was a thunderstorm or something like that. And so they started worshipping the powers that they didn't understand that lay behind those, those things. And then their, their uh, parents started dying. 
And they started thinking, where have they gone? They're not here anymore. All we've got is an inert body. They must have gone somewhere else. Maybe they've gone to join the forces of nature. And so you start worshipping the parents as well. And Freud had a personal theory that uh, in primitive tribes, uh, because the father of the tribe had all the women and all the power and the best of the food and everything else, the young men in the tribe would, would uh, rise up against him and kill him because they wanted to be father as well. And that would create tremendous guilt in them. And Freud said this is where moral ideas come from, the prehistoric sense of guilt because we killed their father. Now, there's not a shred of evidence for any of that. And C.S. Lewis said, well, you know, if they felt guilty, presumably that's because he had moral ideas before then. <laughs> If they felt guilty, then they must have thought there was something wrong in what they were doing. So that can't be where morals came from. But anyhow, that was Freud. And uh, uh, he was a brilliant thinker, but he was good at coming up with theories which sound plausible on the surface of things, but don't have a fragment of proof behind them. The other guy, well, he's not quite so well known. That's Wilhelm Schmidt, who was one of the greatest anthropologists, linguists, zoologists of the 20th century. Um, interesting man, he left uh, Austria to go to Switzerland when Hitler came to power and he actually managed to work for the resistance in, in, in uh, Switzerland to free Austria from the Nazis during the Second World War. So he was, he was a larger than life character. He was also a Catholic priest and so he did not accept Freud's idea at all. Unlike Freud, he'd done lots of research on primitive tribes where he'd gone and worked and, and talked and, and written things down. And he... Uh, claims that in, in many of the tribes that he went to that were animistic and polytheistic, worshipping lots of different gods, there was a memory of an older religion which they no longer practised, a religion based around one father god. And whereas uh, Freud said, oh, no, no, they worshipped all of these nature things and parents and things like that, and then all came together and then one day, somebody suddenly, suddenly why are you worshipping lots of gods? Let's just worship one. And oh, that's right. And that's where monotheism came from. That, uh, says Schmidt, is just not true. The original religion of mankind seems to have been belief in one father God. And the tribes will tell you that they got away from that because they were too worried about the circumstances. They didn't want to trust the Father God to deal with, and so on and so forth. But they still retain that memory of that older religion. And so Schmidt says, this fits perfectly with what the Bible says, <laughs> that originally God created human beings to relate to him as their one God and their father, and sin got into the picture and everything went wrong. And as a result, all kinds of other things happened. The Tower of Babel and all the other things that, that are talked about in, in, in Genesis. And the whole business became incredibly confused. Well, we'll probably never know whether Schmidt is right um, or, or whether uh, Freud has anything to be said for him at all. Because we have never found a culture anywhere in the world which is pre-religious. Every culture in the world is a religious culture. There are people who believe in God all over the place, and many, many more than, than we used to think. And that's because of this next guy. Sorry, it's lots of elderly European males tonight, but uh, uh, this is probably... Yeah, I think he's the last one, so that's okay. Uh, this is Sir Alistair Hardy. Uh, at least it was when he was a bit younger. I met him just before he died, and he certainly didn't look... Uh, like that, but uh, Alistair Hardy was a great zoologist and a marine biologist who was professor of zoology at Oxford University for 15 years, and uh, he became very famous because of his researches. But he, as a young man, uh, was fascinated with religion, 
not because at public school he had to go to chapel and things like that, but because he was already interested in the natural world. And he'd go out on his bike or down the country lanes, explore nature, and he just he said, he said that sometimes he had a sense that there was something there around him, something bigger than him, something he felt accountable to, something that he just could not ignore which was right there, and uh, he describes it here. From very early days, I was a keen naturalist. When out on country walks by myself looking for beetles and butterflies, I would sometimes feel a presence which seemed partly outside and, curiously, partly within myself. My God was never an old gentleman out there, but nevertheless was like a person I could talk to and in a loving prayer could thank him for the glorious nature that he let me experience. If I may make an admission, and to do so is only honest, I should say that sometimes... When I was sure that no one was looking, I would go down on my knees to express this gratitude. At the same time, I'd become an ardent Darwinian. <laughs> he remained a believer in evolution to the end of his life. And that, I think, tragically hindered him from ever really taking the Bible seriously. He definitely had some kind of experience of God, but whether or not he got into the kingdom or not, I couldn't tell you. All I know is that he was fascinated for the rest of his life with religious experience and what it actually means. And so before he died with the money he'd made from biology, he started a religious experience research unit at Mansfield College in Oxford University. And it's, it's been through a few universities now. It's at Lampeter in Wales at the moment. And what it's, it does is it, in, it, uh, revi <clears throat> Sorry. it interviews people about their personal experience of God. Or this power that he's talking about. And they ask questions like, have you ever been in a situation where you've been aware of something that's just overpowering, bigger than you, something which is able to judge you, something to which you feel accountable? And time and again, people say, yeah, oh yes, absolutely. And if uh, people who've got no religious connections whatsoever have turned around to make sure the wife isn't listening and have then said, okay, let me tell you about it. Once when I was on the beach at the seaside, once when I was on in a field at night with all the stars up above. And often it's exposed to this immensity of nature. But people just have this natural sense that God is there. Well, Hardy's dead now, but the research unit goes on. And this next guy, uh, yes, another European male, sorry about that, um, David Hay. He's also died. He died three or four years ago. He was uh, heading up the unit three or four years ago. And he actually became a Christian through his work with the research unit. Because he began to believe that all of this stuff that he was turning up, this religious experience in people's lives, had to mean something and come from somewhere. And so he started to explore and read the Bible. And uh, the end result was that he became a Christian. But he said at the end of his career, in an article he, he, uh, he had published just before he died, we now know that religious or spiritual experience is widespread in the Western world. The last UK national survey indicated that around three quarters of the adult population admit to being aware of a spiritual dimension in their lives. Surveys in Britain and the United States have also repeatedly demonstrated links between religious experience and good mental health, good education, lack of prejudice, and concern for social justice. And that's all important stuff because it's, it's, it's uh, taking a, a blow at some of the things that people have said. Oh, when you're religious, you become prejudiced and bigoted. You're concerned with yourself. You're not worried about other people. All of the good in the world is being done by atheists. And when you're religious, well, uh, you, 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 your mental health suffers as well because you, you start believing in fitness and stuff, don't you? So oh, it's, it's, it's not healthy for you. But actually, being uh, interested in spirituality 
definitely connects <laughs> with mental health and with care for other people. So, interesting stuff. But you, you might look at all of this and say, okay, so people are religious. Most people have got some kind of religious side to them. But it expresses itself in lots of different ways. Isn't it just that different cultures have different approaches to the same thing? And that actually we're all talking about the same message. There are two pictures I find people use again and again to try to explain this to benighted Christians. Let's have a look at them. The first of those uh, is, is, is this one, the elephant. <laughs> you know the old story about uh, the seven blind men who tried to uh, feel their way around an elephant and, 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 and describe what the elephant was like? And somebody got hold of the tail and said, well, it's, 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 it's very like a rope. Somebody felt round the, the, the legs and said, no, 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 an elephant is like a tree trunk. And somebody else got hold of the trunk and said, it's like a fire hose to me. And they all had a bit of the elephant, but nobody had the real thing. Well, people say, isn't that what religions are doing? They've all got a little bit of the truth, but actually nobody has the whole picture. <laughs> and when you put it all together, that's when you get the whole picture. Well, be not. Because unless, and can we move it on one little bit more? If somebody somewhere doesn't see the whole elephant, then nobody knows anything. I mean, you can only do a jigsaw, can't you, when you know what you're trying to achieve. You have to keep referring to the pattern on the lid and say, oh, this bit goes here and this bit goes there. And if nobody sees the whole elephant, who knows whether what you've got is the tail or the legs or the ears or what, what you're feeling. How can you put something together? Because you can't just jam it all together. You can't say, oh, an elephant is uh, very like a, a fire hose uh, growing out of a tree trunk. Mm -hmm. That's no animal either. You need the whole thing or you have no picture at all. And for somebody to say, well, you know, you've all got a bit of the truth, but nobody has the whole picture. How would you know that? Only if you can see the whole elephant yourself. So if nobody sees the whole elephant, nobody knows whether one religion has got it right and not the others have got it wrong, or whether they've all got a bit of the truth, or whether they're all misguided. This picture doesn't help at all. How about the next picture? The next picture is the picture of the hill. And this is a picture where people say, you know, I like to see religions as different paths leading up a hill. And they all start from different sides and take different approaches. And they all go up the hill. And then when they get to the top of the hill, there is God. And all the paths converge in one. You know, hi, hi, hi. Hello, Hindus. Hello, Buddhists. Hello, Christians. And we all get together at the top. Well, that's fine if hills hip like this. But unfortunately, hills aren't usually as smooth as this one. <laughs> Let me show you a hill that I once climbed. This is the next slide. This is a hill called Damayat, um, in the, at the end of the Ochel Range in, in central Scotland. I used to live just a few miles away from it, and uh, eh, I think I was about 18 when I suddenly thought, I have never, ever climbed Damayat. Everybody climbs Damayat at least once in their life. So let's go and climb it. So I got to Alva Glen at the bottom of the hill, and uh, this is what you see, a path that winds up the hill. And I started to climb it up, and I thought, well, it's a hot afternoon, but it, it was hot in Scotland, it really was. And uh, I thought, I'll be done by tea time, it'll be easy enough. I started climbing. And then I found that there were three paths round the corner there. It branches out in three different directions. So I chose the most likely one and went on walking and walking and walking. And eventually, I came round a corner and thought, I know that sheep. I've seen that sheep at least once before. <laughs> and right enough, the route I was on was taking me round and round in circles. I don't know how I got on it, but that's what had happened. So I had to go back to the, the place where the three roads went off and try the second one. 
And I was a bit more awake this time, and I'm glad I was, because this one led up sharply, and I thought, oh, this is good, this is great. I turned the corner, and sheer drop. <laughs> no warning. But if I'd gone on much further, I'd have gone off the end. So I had to go back down to the glen and take the road that seemed as if it was going downwards. The little insignificant turning, it didn't look as if it was going anywhere. And right and right round the hill, that went up and up and up and up until we, you, I, I got to the top. And sometimes hills are like that. Not all roads necessarily are to the summit. Uh, sometimes, if you click the next one, some paths go nowhere. And you can spend your entire life following a path that doesn't take you any further. That's what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here when he says, cease these vain things, get away from these useless things. The word he uses is mtaioi, which means ineffective. They don't do anything. They don't get you anywhere. And there are spiritual paths which will not actually do you much good. On the other hand, also there are some paths that are just dangerous. And they, they lead you to disaster if you follow them too far. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those in a moment. So not all paths necessarily read, the, read to, the, to the top. And I think those two pictures are dangerous pictures, although you'll find them used all over the place. Um, now, let's just see if we can uh, play a bit of video at this point, shall we? Oh, it's working. Look at that. Jesus Christ is the only door to eternity. 
eternal life. But notice, they're not exclusive about people. On the contrary, they believe God loves every single one of us. Everyone is invited to enter through the door and be saved. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God desires all people to be saved. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You just can't get any more inclusive than that. But are Christians being arrogant? Not at all. Suppose I think the matter over, consider the objections as carefully as I can, but realize that I am finite, and furthermore, a sinner, certainly no better than those with whom I disagree, and indeed inferior, both morally and intellectually, to many who do not believe what I do. But suppose it still seems clear to me that the proposition in question is still true. Can be arrogant or morally wrong to continue to do this? No. Christians aren't saying they're better than other people. No, they're simply saying that what they believe about Jesus is true. And notice this. Those who disagree think that what they believe is true and that Christianity is not. Does this make them arrogant? No. All people have equal value. But all ideas do not. Some ideas are better than others. So, what do you believe is true? All people have equal value, but all ideas do not. Some ideas are better than others. Okay, let's look at that statement, if we can put it up on this screen again in a moment, Richard, that we're talking about. All religions lead to God. Let's have a look at that just bit by bit. All religions, to start with. What is a religion? It's a more difficult question than you might imagine. All religions lead to God. What do they actually do? Where do we get you? And then all religions lead to God. What can you actually know for sure about God? What do they all tell you? And how much of it is there some agreement about? <laughs> well, let's look at those things. Well, look at the religion thing. Uh, this, this next slide is, is, is a picture of what happened just before Christmas in 1978 in Guyana in South America. What had happened was that a church called the People's Temple from San Francisco, which certainly wasn't a Christian church, it was involved in all sorts of weird stuff, uh, had built a commune called Jonestown, where 900 members of the college had left their homes and their families back in, in, in California and had invested all their savings in following Jim Jones, their leader, who was a hypnotic preacher, uh, a man who was renowned for doing miracles. He did some of those uh, uh, fake operations where somebody's lying on the operating table and uh, he'll just uh, pump their, their, their stomach for a little while and then pull out something and say, there you are, the cancer is gone. And everybody applauds, and uh, meanwhile his wife takes away the piece of diseased chicken liver he had stuck into a plastic his, 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 on, on his finger and uh, uh, put it in the bin before anybody can examine it. He was an absolute con man. He was a fraud. Uh, he had uh, uh, all kinds of devices for getting money out of his followers. At one stage he was saying to them, listen, you don't need more than one pair of shoes. If you've got more than one pair of shoes, sell the others and uh, uh, bring me the money. And they found after he died that he actually had 30 pairs of shoes. They were just all identical, so it looked like he was wearing the same pair every day. 
And even in small things like that, he was just thoroughly corrupt. He became diseased as well because of his use of alcohol and drugs and morphine. And although they'd gone to Jonestown to build a new international city, it didn't work out. The dream never took place. And he became convinced that uh, what they had to do instead was to die. And instead of killing himself, he unleashed his sick death wish on the, the whole of the community and said, we've all got to die. Mass suicide. And so he had a, a, a big uh, tub uh, set up in front of that building that you see in the background of the picture there, uh, full of Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. And uh, first the mothers and the children lined up with their paper cup, dipped the cup into the Kool-Aid, drank it and died. Then the fathers, then even the guards who'd been heard him with guns, laid down their guns, went up to Kool-Aid, took the paper cup and killed themselves. And what you see is the result. What the first newsmen saw when they flew in the next day because they'd heard rumours that something horrible had happened in the jungle. Now those people were absolutely sincere in what they believed. The people's temple was their religion. <laughs> but can you say that's a healthy religion? Something that's going to lead you to God? I don't think you can. So to say all religions lead to God, you're including some horrible things in there. And they say, oh, well, not those religions, but just the nice ones. Well, who's to say what's a nice religion and what's a not nice religion? Where do you draw the line? Who gets to decide? You're only one observer. Either it's all religions or it's, it's no religion. So that's one question that I think you'd have to ask. The next picture, I think, is Jim Jones. This is a guy who was able to take 900 people with him when in death because they believed in him implicitly. And you cannot say... That was a healthy thing to believe in. Now, I think, Richard, the second video is one that wouldn't work. Is that right? This one will. Oh, we don't really need this one. But anyway, let's, let's watch five minutes of it. Here's another example from back in history. Aztec sacrifice, 14 to the 16th century AD. Who were the Aztecs? Why was human sacrificing so important and central to their society? The term Aztec is a modern-day invention to describe the various tribes who make up the Mexican kingdom they rose to prominence there during the 9th century, and their empire peaked in power and culture from the 14th century until the 16th century, when the Spanish conquered the region, devastating and destroying the Aztecs once and for all in an incredibly short space of time. Ritual sacrifice and self-bloodletting was central to the lives of the Aztecs. Ingrained through ritual and tradition into the Aztec psyche, the concept of blood sacrifice was at the very core of their beliefs. They felt they were dead to the gods. One the people should continue to pay every day, otherwise the sun would not rise. The Aztecs firmly believed that the sacrifice of the deities at the beginning of time led to the very creation of the universe, while other gods sacrificed themselves in fire in order to bring life into the sun. The Aztecs believed in many gods and deities, but by far the most important was Huitzilopochtli, the god of sun and war, who demanded blood in order to be appeased. So individual bloodletting became a daily ritual for the Aztecs, regardless of the age, gender, or social standing of the victim. Animals were also regularly sacrificed in both private and public. Quail was always a popular choice to use, but they also regularly used dogs, eagles, jaguars, and deer. And certain deities, such as the feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl, required to sacrifice some butterflies and hummingbirds. Though what really drew the community together was public human sacrifice. They would sacrifice people in public, often prisoners of war, with great pageantry and ritual by a high priest. Such was the demand for human sacrifices 
scholars do not agree about that exact figure, but I believe it was between 1,000 to 25,000 a year. Aztec warriors in battle would often wound an opponent rather than kill him in order to capture him and bring him back for human sacrifice. It is widely believed that many of their wars were motivated by the need to gather more victims and as a way of intimidating neighboring cities. They would normally kill these victims by the use of a sacred sacrificial dagger, as it was believed their blood would give life to the sun, each drop slowly reviving Okay, I think that's probably enough about the Aztecs. I don't want to spoil your supper for you, but uh, clearly, uh, if you've got a religious system which involves everybody in the community in shedding blood unnecessarily every day, and in killing between 1,000 and 25,000 sacrificial victims every year, I just work out how many that means. That's at least three a day, you know, two, two to three a day. Uh, at the very, very least, that's a horrendous amount of bloodshed, isn't it? And can you say that really is a religion that's going to bring people closer to their creator? I doubt it very strongly. And so if you, you, you start saying, well, we won't have those religions, but we'll have the noble ones, the heroic ones, the spiritual ones. Who are you to choose? How can you decide the value of somebody else's faith? Either you have them all, or you, you start making choices as if you were God yourself <laughs> about which religions are accepted and which are not. So all religions don't think so. Let's look at the second phrase. All religions lead to. What exactly are these religions supposed to produce? There's been a, a, a researcher in, in Canada who's become very famous over the last 20 years, uh, Michael Persinger, for a thing he's, he's, he's uh, devised called the God Helmet. This is what it looks like. And the God Helmet is something that you can put on your head and it's supposed to generate, by stimulating your brain, uh, religious experiences. <laughs> It doesn't work for everybody, uh, but he claims that 80% of, of, of the people who put this on will have generated within their skulls the kind of experiences that religious people normally have. And the attempt is to prove that the, the religious experience actually starts from somewhere in the brain. And so uh, if we can generate it by, by artificial means, then we can examine it and we can explode it and, and, and uh, we, can, we can safely forget about religion. But... What is a religious experience anyway? Um, this uh, helmet doesn't always work, and the, his experiments have been massively criticised by many people because people go into them knowing exactly what's supposed to happen. And you know, for many people, it's like when you read a, 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 a medical encyclopedia and you become convinced you've got all of the diseases you read about. It's suggested to your mind, and so you start to leave it. And so his rates seem to be an awful lot higher than any of those. Actually, uh, Richard Dawkins uh, tried the helmet on and went through the whole thing, and to his great disappointment, experienced nothing. He said he was very, very uh, disappointed with that. But other people have tried to reproduce those experiments without creating the expectations that Persinger does. And it doesn't always work. The University of Uppsala, for instance, in Sweden, in contrast to the results from Persing and others, the team found that the magnetism, because that's what the helmet does, had no discernible effects. What they did was to take some people and put them through the experiment, I think it was 42 people, without the build-up that Persinger gives it, so they didn't know what the experiment was for, and another 46 people who had the helmet on but didn't get the magnetism. Nothing happened. It was just a placebo. And so having done that, two out of the three participants in the Swedish study that reported strong spiritual experiences belong to the control group, the group that got no magnetism, the group that weren't experiencing anything. 
And 11 out of the 22 who reported subtle experiences were in that control group as well. <laughs> so it doesn't look as if the magnetism actually does anything. But the interesting thing, from our point of view, as people who are interested in religious experiences, is this really a religious experience being talked about? Here are some of the, the uh, reports from people who've had the helmet experience. Number one is a middle-aged professional journalist. I see shadows along my left side. There is someone touching my left side. There is a flash of light, a tunnel experience. I feel as if I am shrinking and expanding. There is a tingling inside of my thigh, sexual excitement. There's a cold rush. I see a visual. It's an apparition. Now, that, of course, happens to you every time you have a quiet time. Is that right? Does that happen to Christians? Not very often, does it? Let's try another one. Here's a second one. And this is a 21-year-old female who's uh, got a history of diabetes. I felt a presence behind me and then along the left side. When I tried to focus on its position, the presence moved. Every time I tried to sense where it was, it moved around. When it moved to the right side, I experienced a deep sense of security like I had not experienced before. I started to cry when I felt it slowly fade away. Again, that's not normal religious experience, is it? Not just in Christianity, but in other faiths either. And the third one would, would be this. A 30-year-old woman, I feel detached from my body. I am floating up. There is a kind of vibration moving through my sternum. There are odd lights or faces along my left side. My body is becoming very hot. Tingling sensations in my chest and stomach. Now both arms up. There is something, there is something feeling my ovaries. Oh, there you go. I don't think that is normal religious experience, is it? And whatever these people are trying to explore, it doesn't sound like anything that Christians would normally report as happening to them when you read the Bible, when you pray, or when you feel God's presence around them. So it all points to the question, doesn't it? Next slide. What would you be convinced by? What would convince you that you had the real thing and not just a spooky liver shiver that maybe came from your own imagination or maybe came from the magnet? How would you be convinced that you were really in touch with the genuine supernatural? Would it be a miracle, something like that? Somebody doing something that could not be explained uh, by normal means? Or would it be an argument? Those are the two things that people usually come up to, to, to me with when, when I ask this question in, in a school or a university. What would convince you that God was real? Some people go for the miracle and say, well, okay, if he can do something that just proves he's there, I would believe him. And other people say, well, if you can give me an argument that's watertight, that shows that God must exist, then okay, I'll believe in him. But I don't think anything would work. For one thing, with the miracle, I think you'd be impressed to start with, and you might think, that's amazing, that's great, wow, I, I saw God, he came down on a flaming cloud and turned Richard at the back there into a frog, that's amazing. And you start thinking, wait a minute, he came down on a flaming cloud, he turned Richard into a frog, I'm going mad. This is crazy. Maybe I've had some kind of bad dream or something. But you wouldn't, you'd doubt your own experience, wouldn't you? Because it would be so unlike anything you had ever experienced before. How about the other idea that you can get a watertight argument? Well, you can prove almost anything with statistics, can't you? And it looks great on the, on the surface of things, but then a week later somebody starts pulling it about and playing with the figure and you find it doesn't work. And so if you had a complicated proof that ended, therefore, X equals Y, therefore God exists, thank you, you would spend the rest of your life probably looking for the hole in the argument, for the flaw that you hadn't noticed somewhere down. That would bring in no assurance whatsoever. And the Apostle Paul says that the Jews were looking for a sign, for a miracle. And the Greeks were looking for an argument. But he said, we preach Christ crucified. 
a person, a relationship with a person. And I think rather than a one-off thing, like an argument or a miracle, which uh, just is there, it's, 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 it's happened, and all you have to do is make sense of it afterwards, what would make you absolutely convinced that God was real would be an ongoing relationship with a living person, someone who was crucified, who has conquered death and come back out on the other side, and who wants to be in your life and change a person. At this point, we were going to have another video, but uh, Apple will not do it. It's okay. We can move on, though. Um, and uh, thank you. No, yeah, leave it there for the moment. And the, the, the video was going to be um, the story of a, a, a very intelligent Indian girl who's become a doctor in America, and the way in which, coming from a Hindu uh, Brahmin background, uh, right at the heart of the religious system that she was brought up in, she started finding an emptiness that could not be answered, and she found the answer to it only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm sorry you can't see that, but uh, on YouTube, <laughs> which is where I got it from, there are so many more like it, coming from a Hindu background, a Sikh background, a Muslim background, all over the place. People who found the reality of Jesus through a relationship, not through a clever argument, not through some spooky experience, but through something that just goes on and on on a daily basis. So, finally, we reach the third bit. All religions lead to God. Well, as we've heard already on that first video, the world's religions fall out about more than they agree on. And so if there is a God who is concerned to communicate with the human race, and he's communicating through all of the different religions, he's not doing a very good job because they all cancel one another out. And you're left with heaps of questions. Here are just seven questions, for example. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about any of them. Is God a person? Is he several persons like the Greeks and the Romans used to be? Is he a force? Or is he the universe itself? Is the universe actually God? As New Agers would, would sometimes tell you. Who is God? You have all of these different options. Is God eternal and changeless? Or is he temporary? Or is he still developing? Is he always the same? Or is he turning into something else? You find all of those different theories in different religions. Does God love us? Well, Christians say he does. Does he love some of us, but not others, as some other religions do? Or does he hate us? Not many religions have that point of view, but some do. And if all religions lead to God, there you are. Or is God just indifferent to us? As, for instance, the Babylonians believed that God had created us to be the slaves of the gods, and they, they couldn't care less about us. You have all of those options in different world religions. Does God send signals to us, or some of us, or none of us? Does God ever talk to somebody? If somebody talks to them and says, I have a message from God, can we believe it, or can we not? What are the criteria? How do you do it? All of these questions go unanswered because all of the different answers cancel one another out. And so we go on. Is the universe heading somewhere? Or is it caught in some sort of infinite loop? Hindus believe that uh, um, every 434, I can't remember the number exactly, there is a cycle completed, a yoga, uh, in, in the world's history. And then the whole thing just, just again. Four yugas, one after another. And uh, we are in, in the middle of the Kali Yuga at the moment, which is the worst of the lot. And this is why there's so much work, uh, trouble and uh, strife going on in the world. But don't expect anything to end in your lifetime because it's still got 300,000 years to go. So um, is, that, is that the case? Or is history going somewhere? Has God got a plan? Is, is something going to end at some point? And if so, have the Muslims got it right? Or have the Christians got it right? Or have the Jews got it right? And so every religion has its, its, its own different answer. 
Is God a moral God or an amoral one? Does God care what we do? Can God be trusted? And the, the final question I said up there, does God have future plans for us? Or do we just perish? Or are we transformed into some other form of life? You see, you can't be secure yourself, can you? Unless you have a clear picture of who's running the whole show and what you actually believe about him. And I've, I have I, I to say that I think that if all really lead to God, then one, none of them tell us anything very much about him <laughs> because they all cancel one another out. Two, God can't care much about us either or he would have made himself a bit more clear. And three, if this is a the situation, then Christianity certainly is ruled out and disqualified because it claims to be the unique way in which God has spoken to the human race. And so that's the background, I think, on which we have to build our answer to somebody who says, yeah, but don't all religion live to God. Once you start looking at the idea, it seems to me, it falls apart utterly. And we have to find a way of saying politely, in a way that won't get us stoned to death by angry Greeks, cease from these vain things. Let's leave it there for tonight. Let's just pray, and then, John, you've got another hymn, haven't you? Heavenly Father, we've raced through a lot of material tonight, and uh, next week it'll all come together a bit more, I hope. But uh, I just pray that you will help us in our thinking about this whole issue to get our own thoughts straight. Help us know what we can say that's gracious and kind and respectful and yet true to you, firmly based on the one truth that everybody needs to hear. Realize, Father, there are great things in some of the world faiths. Some of the people who, who are heroes in those faiths who never got to hear about Jesus did the best they could with the information they had. And there are some remarkable things that have come out of different world faiths. But they are all matayoi. They all fall short because they never get us to your presence. They may give us experiences of one kind or another. They may give us wisdom that can help in living our lives. But they will never give us that living link with a relational God that Christianity offered us. So, Father, this week, help us value what we've got. Help us sharpen our skills in being able to explain it to others. And help us be the kind of people that Jesus died to make us. Because we ask it for your namesake. Amen.